agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government has the government love. The government has the government love. The government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, Cleveland area attorney and defender of freedom, Jay Carson. Hey, good morning, Mike. Hey, Jay, how are you doing this morning? I'm, I'm doing pretty good. I don't have anything witty today, I'm afraid. That's uh, that. That's okay. Long, long week, early morning, that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, so. I, I totally understand. I, I don't either. I'm just waiting for my basement to flood in the midst of this thunderstorm we're going through. And so that'll be a fun time cleaning that up. But anyway, until that happens, we have a show to do, and I'm looking forward to it. Um, before we get to that, though, I want to thank some of our newest supporters. First, Donald, who made a generous contribution to the show through PayPal, and also David, who's supported the show through Venmo, and he also wrote in, great show with the other guys, Trey and Ken, this week. As a young politics fan, it was nice to get in the weeds of economics just a bit. I love it. Keep up the great work. Thanks very much, David. And of course, as everyone knows, as a Patreon supporter, you get that second full-length episode every week. You also get ad-free versions of all our shows, as well as other things at different levels of support. To check it out, just go to patreon.com slash politicsguys. And if you like that weekly bonus show, but you can't afford to support us financially right now, totally not a problem. Just send me an email, mike at politicsguys.com, and I will get you set up. And if a monthly pledge is too much of a commitment, we have Patreon and Venmo as well. We're at Politics Guys. All right, so on today's show, we're going to be talking about the Supreme Court's ruling on the latest challenge to the Affordable Care Act, the new Juneteenth holiday, the Fed and inflation, and uh, maybe if we have time, a Supreme Court decision on religious freedom, the Biden-Putin talks, and the House vote to repeal the 2002 Iraq authorization for use of military force. So a lot of stuff. And before, That's a lot of stuff. Uh, you know, well, you know, some of it's always inevitably going to be pushed over into the midweek show. But, uh, but yeah, it, it, it's always weird, Jay, to say that. Wednesday comes along and it seems like, gosh, there's not much going on. And then Thursday and Friday, things just flood right in. So that works out, uh, I guess, really well for us. But anyway, before we get to that, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back to start the show. All right, Jay. So I thought we would start off this week with that big Supreme Court ruling on the Affordable Care Act. What do you think? Yes. So so uh, on um, uh, Thursday of this week, the Supreme Court ruled in a seven to two decision uh, with Justice Breyer uh, writing the uh, the majority opinion and uh, uh, Justices Kavanaugh and Coney Barrett um, uh, signing on to that opinion, uh, essentially striking down a uh, striking down, uh, dismissing a uh, Texas suit uh, that had been brought against the ACA uh, for lack of standing. Um, uh, now, there were two dissents, uh, Justices Alito and Gorsuch uh, dissented, and we'll talk about that in a second. Um, but I think I think the first thing I'd want to do, Mike, is, is sort of spike the football and say, I, I think this is how I predicted this would turn out several months ago. We can go back and look at the tapes. But um, but I, I there was this was this was in the discussion of, of would uh, um, uh, Coney Barrett's uh, nomination. Um, destroy the ACA and so forth. And I said, no, no. And I think, I believe I even predicted a seven to two ruling. 
that, that I, I will say what I often say when my my wife reminds me of something that uh, she said. Uh, that sounds vaguely familiar, Jay. So I'm gonna yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we can yeah we can we can check. But so you know basically the 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 majority um, held that uh, the there were individual plaintiffs as well as the state plaintiffs, but that they had not shown any sort of uh, that any government action or conduct. Uh, had caused or would cause any injury uh, to them because uh, the the tax piece of the the mandate has been um, legislatively eliminated. Um, so essentially, it, it it comes down to you know no harm, no foul, and it's it's one of these key things in um, uh, any sort of constitutional any sort of uh, litigation really. That one of the first things you have to look at is does the party have standing, which means do they have something at stake here? Have they been harmed or will they be harmed uh, based on what they're alleging? Uh, and that's that's the basis that the, the court um, ruled on. Now, now, sort of tied into that is also the issue of severability. And we'll touch on that in a second. Uh, but the dissent uh, took a, a different view, saying, yes, they they had made that showing. Uh, pointing to uh, additional costs that states incurred um, for administering other portions of the ACA. Um, again, the majority dismissed that as, well, look, those are other portions. It's, it doesn't go to the mandate part, which has been rendered toothless uh, by the legislature. So, Mike, what are what are your, uh, your thoughts uh, on this? Well, you know, I thought it was a really interesting uh, ruling, especially the dissent. And it seems to me, that there were basically three issues here. The, number one, as you pointed out, do the plaintiffs have standing? Number two, if so, is the mandate that they're challenging unconstitutional? And then number three, if so, is the mandate so central to the legislation that it can't be severed from it, meaning that the right. entire act has to be ruled unconstitutional? And as you point yes. out, the majority— and, and my, my answers and the court's answers are— um, uh, no, yes, and no. But, but, and of course, if you answer number one, no, then you don't go to number two or number three. So exactly. it's just no, and then next case. Now, Alito yes. and Gorsuch in their dissent say yes, yes, yes to all three of those questions. And my view is a little bit different. Actually, I have a yes, yes, no answer to those questions. So in a sense, I agree more with that Alito works. and Gorsuch. Yeah, I, I agree more with Alito and Gorsuch, I guess, than I do with uh, uh, the seven-member majority, though in the end, uh, the, the practical result is I agree more with uh, the majority because I, I believe that the act should stand. So, you know, I thought what was interesting here, I, I, maybe we could take these one at a time, the standing question, because it seems to me that actually Justice Alito had a better argument about standing. You know, his uh, and it was a pretty blistering, I thought, dissent. He had a, another one, which we'll talk about you know, later in the show, on the Wednesday show. But on the standing question, he says, that's a remarkable holding by the majority. He says, while the individual plaintiff's claim to standing raises the novel question, the states have standing for reasons that are straightforward and meritorious. The court's contrary holding is based on a fundamental distortion of our standing jurisprudence. Now, I think that's overstating it. I don't think it's a fundamental distortion, but I find a majority's argument, which I take is that, well, the cost or the harm that would give them standing isn't associated with the provision of the law that they're challenging. Well, that's true, but I think it's true but irrelevant because as they go on to argue, well, if that provision can't be severed from the law in full, then 
that makes it not a standing question, but a question on the merits. And so I find the majority's argument unconvincing. And I was wondering what, what you thought about that on the standing question. Wow. No, so I, I'm actually with the majority on on standing because, and, and maybe this is getting getting things a little backwards because I'm also with them on the, the severability question. Um, and, and a lot of what the majority talks about is whether the injuries alleged by the states are fairly traceable uh, to the mandate. And and that I I I do agree with majority. I, I don't see how you get from um the increased costs, the uh other um uh administrative issues, uh administrative burdens that are placed on the states because of the ACA, um from the 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 mandate part. Uh because as the the majority says a number of times, um nobody's making you do this anymore. It's a, a toothless mandate. Um so I, I, I think the majority is right. Now I'm not. I'm not saying that um, what uh, uh, the dissent says is is completely off base, but I, I don't see that those dots connected. Uh, yeah, so, right. And, and see, the, to me, the they're connected. Yeah, to me, they're connected because if in fact the uh, the whole thing must be declared unconstitutional because the, the, the mandate isn't severable, then that means that the, the administrative cost that the states incur for having to file paperwork about ACA and the states demonstrated that they do actually have non-trivial costs associated with that. Well, absent that act, they would not be, those costs would not be imposed. And so therefore there is a, there, there is a harm, there is a cost. And, and it seems to me, I, I get your argument and I get the majority's argument Argument. My feeling on this, I guess, is that in in an instance where there is some doubt, where there are good arguments on both sides, I feel like the benefit of the doubt should go toward standing uh, for 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 a plaintiff. And, and maybe maybe you disagree with that. I don't know, but but I think there are good arguments on both sides. I just find myself a little more convinced by Alito and Gorsuch's view, which is not something I expected to say. I say, wow, you're you're coming around on things. Uh, you would deny healthcare to millions of people. No, no, see, um, and that that's the no, thing. Actually, actually, of course, you wouldn't. Um, but um, no, I, and I, it's, to, to me, I guess the other the other piece is the the severability, and and that you know there is a presumption that if a statute can be saved by by severing uh, a, a portion of it, then that's what you do. Um, but before and this we, is, you know, sort of, it's all sort of a hypothetical kind of at this yeah. point, right? Because let's assume the mandate is unconstitutional and that there's no enforcement piece to it. Um, yeah, well, yeah, and that's I, what Alito says. He says, "Well, yeah, it's yeah. a hypothetical, but that's that's a question on the merits and not a question of standing." And I found that to be a convincing argument. Yeah, I, I and, and and look, he's not wrong, but I think I think you still lose on the the merits, the severability piece. And I think you could you could rightfully criticize the majority at taking maybe sort of a shortcut, right? I think they're ducking um, it. Yeah, I mean, I, I and I get it, but but yeah, I but so I yeah. Let how about if we move on to that second issue about the actual constitutionality of the mandate? And I was actually surprised here because I read. I read Alito's dissent pretty closely, I think, and you know, I I found myself coming away convinced uh, that it actually that mandate exceeds Congress power, Congress's power. And let me let me just quote again from Alito's dissent. He writes, 
Congress cannot supplement its powers through the two-step process of passing a tax, then removing the tax, but leaving in place a provision that is otherwise beyond its enumerated powers. And, and I thought, well, gosh, yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. And uh, yeah, so I, I was wondering what you yeah, thought about no, that. I, I would say amen to that, uh, except then you fall back to the what exactly is is the remedy for it, right? It it becomes just sort of dead letter, sort of a vestigial tail type type thing, right? It's it's on the books, uh, but there's no means to enforce it. Um, and, and likewise, because there's no enforcement against it, there's no real way to strike it down um, through the courts. Yeah, and that maybe ties into it's the just one of these yeah. weird sort of sort of animals out there. Yeah. So Congress can, you're saying Congress can say you, everyone, everyone shall do this, but, and the penalty is zero for not doing that. And that's okay, but no one will ever be able to challenge it because it has no, because no one can suffer any kind of no damages. Yeah. yeah. And see, that just, that just seems to me to be somehow fundamentally wrong, I guess. And, uh, I, and again, I find Alito's argument saying that, well, where is the, is this a tax? And he goes through what the understanding of a tax is and what this means. And he says, you know, by any reasonable definition, a tax with no penalty, with no money associated, that doesn't raise any revenue, is not actually a tax. And so if, it, if that doesn't fall within Congress's taxation power, then point me to a place in the Constitution where it does, and he comes up empty on that. And, you know, I think, yeah, um, that's true. And it sounds like you, you agree with me and Alito on that, but you also don't think that there, anyone can challenge that for the reasons we kind of talked about. Right. Previously. No, I, I, I agree with you again. And the, the hypothetical, is this outside of Congress's power? Yes. And, and that's why, uh, I mean, I, I would have ruled that way back in, you know, Sibelius, uh, or, or, you know, in, in Burwell. Um, the other of the two ACA cases that, that preceded it. Um, but that was different, of but, course, because at that point, there actually was a fee. So right, there was right. money. Well, and so that that's was what I'm, that's what I'm yeah. Yeah, saying. But the, the other piece of this is courts uh, are authorized to decide cases and controversies. And, and to me, I think that's that's where the majority gets it right is. So, OK, this is here. What is the case and controversy? And tell me why it isn't just hypothetical. Right. And and that's, you know, that that's the thing. So, I mean, I think it's great to have we can have that hypothetical. Is this constitutional? Uh, and I would agree with you that it's not. I think it's an extension. Uh, it, it was even when it, when it was enforced. And now that it's not enforced, um, uh, likewise, yeah. it's it's there's there's no there's no constitutional power to to make that proclamation. Um, but uh, where's the case or controversy? Yeah, I see what you're saying. And, and I, yeah, that's a reasonable argument. I think I agree that in Sibelius, the majority got it right that when there actually was a tax and that that was OK. But now I would say it's not. So we're on the same page now. It's, we would have differed before. But moving on to that last part about severability, even if we assume and we agree that this is unconstitutional or exceeds Congress's power. You know, it seems to me this is where Alito gets it wrong. He he argues it's kind of a weird argument. He basically says, well, uh, you know, in the past, a bunch of people were saying that this is really super entwined and the mandate is incredibly important and central to this. And even though Congress zeroed it out in 2017, which 
I think you can reasonably say, well, if it was so central, if Congress thought it was so central, they wouldn't have zeroed it out without eliminating the entire oh. law. But he said, well, that doesn't well, matter. Exactly. They, 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 the argument then was they were zeroing, zeroing out to some extent to eliminate, right? That would it all fall apart uh, if that was zeroed out? Yeah, but, but at the, right. It's, but at the same time, they did not, they did not uh, end the entire Affordable Care Act. And he says, well, that's only because, uh, as he put it, uh, uh, the 2017 Act, and that was the one that zeroed out the mandate penalties, would not have passed the House without the votes of the members who'd voted to scrap the ACA just a few months earlier. And the repeal of the tax or penalty, which they found particularly offensive, was their fallback option. And to me, I read that and I thought, wow, so you're doing like some congressional prognostication. And that seems a bit uh, judicially activist and non-deferential to Congress. And I, I had a real problem with that, you know, saying, well, I think this is what would have happened. Well, maybe so, or maybe not, but that, that seemed to me to be a, a bridge too far. So, I, I mean, I would, I would sort of argue that the other way is, is look, essentially Congress did sever that provision yeah, and okay. the rest of it still, still kept chugging along. So uh, kind of, you know, QED, right? I exactly. Mean, uh, yeah, that's a good point. We, we know sort of by, we don't even have to get into the legal analysis of does it or will it, because it's happened, right? It's happened and uh, the act is still uh, uh, operating. Um, so, so yeah, I, I'm I'm sort of on the, um, and again, there's a, a big tenet of, of uh, statutory construction, uh, out there that says, look, if if a statute can be saved by severability, then then that's what you do. Yeah. Um, and it's sort of it's sort of a safeguard against judicial activism. I mean, are um, you I wanted to ask, I thought you'd kind of come down on that because we've talked about the severability issue before. Are, are you are you surprised at what I guess I would call in, in, in certain aspects the the judicial activism of Alito and, and, and Gorsuch who, who joined him on this? Or is that something that doesn't really surprise you so much? A little bit. I, I think, you know, and again, I, I wish I had listened to that other tape when we talked about this, because at one point I think I said, I think my words were, I think it, it could be unanimous or at least 7-2 mm-hmm. uh, on this. Um, and what what I my, the sense I get from the the Gorsuch and um, uh, Alito dissent is you know first of all one it's a dissent uh, so they they know they're losing they know they've lost um, uh, but they're putting out a couple things they 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 do some other things in that dissent they they point out uh, is this consistent with how we treat standing in other cases right um, you know sort of push a little you know so there's sort of this pushback of look there are other cases where uh, we think other plaintiffs maybe haven't had the same, you know, showing of standing that we think um, uh, the states have made here, but yet we haven't kicked those on on standing. Um, so there's a little, you know, taking some time to do that. Uh, I think there is also there is a a little bit of a shot at um, I don't want to I don't want to infer this and stir the pot as they say, um, but you know maybe maybe uh, some some subtle. And, or not so subtle criticism of uh, Chief Justice Roberts. Yeah. That, you know, look, you kind of were in this kind of goofed up position now because um, you took a little bit of a, an extraordinary step um, in Sibelius. Uh, so. Yeah, and that uh, was by, very by clear. Clear. I mean, that, that was very clear in the dissent yeah. uh, that the the scorn that uh, that Alito heaps I'm upon. I'm trying to give her the benefit of the doubt and be, and be positive and not say. 
Uh, hey, they're trashing you. <laughs> they're trashing you, John. But um, yes, if you want to phrase it that way, that you find it even more, more uh, I, I said subtle, and, and you found it to be oh, not just, so subtle. He but, talks um, about the extraordinary lengths to which the court has gone to save this. And of course, that has to refer to Roberts because absent yes. his vote in Sebelius, that means, yeah. So, I, you know, and it's interesting to me that it's. So, that, so that's what I'm saying. I, I don't, my sense is the dissent is, is animated more out of that, pushing back on on those issues rather than substantive points of law, right? That they think the the law is wrong. I think they're just kind of calling out uh, what they see. If I can, if I could, could go as far as to call it hypocrisy, right? Um, uh, and and just just for the the sake of, of calling that out. Yeah, I think not, I'm assert- not trying to not trying to set up. I guess you know here's here's what the new the new law will be when we get more votes or or something like that like well, you know that's the other thing you could simply do in, in dissent is saying no here's what here's where they went wrong here's what the law ought to be um this is this is less that laying the groundwork and more just kind of um taking some pot shots if you will yeah I, I think on a certain level you'd have to find it a little disappointing uh on the part of uh alito and gorsuch that they allowed their uh, anger or their peak to sort of overwhelm as you pointed out sort of the, the the clear common sense view that well this this is severable and we know it's severable because as you pointed out well look right and it's been severed yeah and, yes. and that's it's, that's exactly <laughs> the kind of judging i think that sort of uh judicial action on both the left and the right that you and i have for years uh called out um yeah although i, I Again, I think it's sometimes it's tough to accuse somebody of judicial activism in the dissent. I see what you're saying. Uh, sure. Yeah. If, if you're if you're dissenting, you're, you're sort of by definition not a judicial activist. Well, I know I would disagree uh, with that, because if you if the action you are calling for is activist and it's judicial activism, it's just judicial, judicial yeah, activism. Make, I suppose you can make an activist argument. But yeah. Yeah. You're not actually. Right. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's not there's actually. No, there's yeah. no consequences. Exactly. To it. Exactly. So, so yeah, I, I guess, yeah, we'll have to, some will, some will maybe look back, but I will say congratulations on your call. And of course, I feel that in the end, the decision or the practical results of the decision were correct and the Affordable Care Act lives on. And it looks to me at this point like it's on pretty solid ground at this point, at least in terms of the court, in terms of court challenges. Uh, probably. I think yeah. that's, that's probably right. Unless somebody can think of, uh, again, come up with a plaintiff who's got who's got real standing on this. Um, but we'll see. I, I, did, I wanted to, to bounce another issue off you, though, and that's sort of the political piece of this, uh, in that when we, we were going through the, the Kavanaugh confirmations and the Coney Barrett confirmations, um, Democrats, particularly Chuck Schumer, uh, you know, went on the floor and said, listen, a vote for to confirm these justices is a vote to deny millions of, of Americans health care. Um, and, and one that, that troubles me that, that there is this idea that the judge, judges are vote in lockstep with the party that nominated them or that we're, we're appointing judges for policy purposes. Um, but that, that didn't pan out. Nope. Um, no, and I think that's that's fair to point out. And I, I too, am troubled when both on the left and the right, we've seen it more on the on the on the left, just because it's been conservative nominations to the Supreme Court for a while. But but yeah, I think that that's sort of hyperbole. We don't we we don't often know. We can have some pretty good ideas on certain issues how 
uh, nominees to the court will uh, will decide. But I think, you know, both this case and we'll get to it either later on the show or the Wednesday case, I think especially in the religious freedom issue of, uh, on that case where uh, a number of people expected Justice Barrett, I think in particular, to vote in one way, and she didn't. So I, right now, at least in, in terms of this particular term of the court, the fears, the worst fears of the left so far have not have clearly not been realized. And, you know, to me, of course, that that's a that's a relief. Yeah, no. It, it, well, to me, it, it's. It's less of a, a not so much a relief. It's just sort of what I expected. Yeah. Um, and and what what you would, would hope for, right? And and look again, you, you don't always get judges ruling the way you'd like. Um, but but I think the criticism that these nominees were extreme and were being put on for solely you know policy reasons to re, to reverse legislative policy, um, uh, it, it just is is not the case. And I, I think if you were I'd hope if you were, you know, one of these people who wore a Handmaid's Tale outfit to a confirmation hearing, you're feeling maybe a little silly now. Well, but, I, I um, don't think so. You know, that, I, I don't think that so. Sailed, but. No, I don't think so, because we still I mean, in terms of the uh, magnitude of the cases the court took up in this term, a, a little I mean, not as much as some things that are coming up in the future. And uh, you know, like like, for instance, the the abortion challenges. And so I, I think that, the, as you jokingly put it, the people with the handmaid's tale, you know, costumes or what have you, I, you know, let's wait and see what they do with those uh, with those abortion challenges. And uh, I I hope you're right, certainly. Uh, but we'll uh, it remains to be seen, I think. Next term, I think, is going to be a, a much more significant term uh, for for a number of reasons, but we will we'll see about that. All right. Okay. Uh, before we move on to our next door, we're just going to take a quick break, and we will be right back. Everyone deserves nice things, but with all the markups in traditional luxury retail, high quality goods can be awfully expensive. Quince is different. They're a one-stop shop for essential products with low design costs. They've got tees, hoodies, loungewear, pants and shorts, blouses, dresses, skirts. I mean, unless you're a nudist, they've got something for you. And, you know, even if you are clothing optional, they've got home accessories, bedding, bath, decor, all sorts of good stuff. Quince finds the best factories and only partners with those committed to the highest production standards, fair wages, safety, and sustainability, which is particularly a big deal to me. And because Quince is shipping directly to you with no agents, stores, or other middlemen, you get great 100% factory direct prices on everything. I mean, I've been desperately in need of some new t-shirts, and I was really impressed by the price and quality of their organic Pima cotton selection. And my bath towels, honestly, are looking pretty ratty, too. So Quince's great prices on high-quality Turkish bath towels, they, they really caught my eye. Quality shouldn't be a luxury. You deserve it. So try Quince today. Get free shipping and 365-day free returns by going to onequince.com slash politicsguys. Many of their collections sell out immediately, so don't wait. You can save hundreds of dollars on clothing and accessories by going to onequince.com slash politicsguys. That's O-N-E-Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash politicsguys. So happy Juneteenth, Jay. We are yeah, actually... Yeah, we have a new, fed, new federal holiday. Yeah, we, uh, are, we are recording uh, this actually on 
the official Juneteenth day, the the 19th of June. And so I thought this would be, of course, a very opportune day to talk about this, right? Yeah. So this, um, and I'll tell you, Mike, Juneteenth uh, sort of snuck up on us this year um, (laughs) (laughs) in that it became a holiday yesterday uh, or or Thursday afternoon, I I should say. Um, The uh, bill, uh, uh, it was a a bipartisan bill that came out of the, the Senate. Uh, it passed the Senate unanimously, uh, and then quickly moved to the House, where it passed uh, 415 to 14, and was immediately signed into law uh, by President Biden. Um, which, Michael, also tell you, it, it's a little bit weird when you have things to do in court uh, on that are scheduled for Friday, and then on the Thursday night before that Friday, that next day becomes a federal holiday all of a sudden. Um, yeah, I uh, bet. There's, it can generate some confusion. Um, but, you know, I, I you know, I, the, the 14 who voted against it, um, uh, Senator uh, Cornyn described one of them as, as the criticism as being sort of kooky. Uh, and, and the criticisms, the, the votes against, um, there were some, uh, uh, General Goldberg pointed uh, to, to one uh, member, and I'm, I'm missing his name right now in Congress, who, who voted against it based on the, the title of the bill. The, mm-hmm. So it was called the Juneteenth Independence Day uh, something holiday. Right, that somehow and, and people would confuse this with uh, – Well, with, yeah, with yeah. The, so that was, yeah, that was the, the objective. It's, it's somehow seeking to conflate or, or take away from that actual Independence Day. And, and look, I think, I think he's, he's right on the merits, right, that the, it would better – the official title would better have been called Emancipation Day or Freedom Day or, or something like that. Um, but as but, he pointed it, out in the article, and it was a funny article when he talked about, well, yeah, if you yeah. think about that, who's going to call it anything but Juneteenth? Exactly. I mean, it's not like we call Labor Day the official name of Labor's holiday. And there was a whole, uh, yeah. Well, yeah, Thanksgiving is something, it was the Thanksgiving to our beneficent uh, God for the blood of right, God. Right, exactly, yeah. Like that is the official title of the holiday. Um, and and as it, to me, uh, I'm a big believer in in this is sort of the Burkean traditional piece, right? I mean, the the federal government um, observes Independence Day. Uh, real Americans celebrate the Fourth of July. Yeah. Um, and and yeah, if if you don't, if, if people don't get what I mean by that, then then I yeah. guess they never will. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> to to me, that that um, uh, you know, look, I think that may have been a, a fair criticism, a fair thing to quibble over. Uh, but probably like Jonah says, I, I don't see that would be something that would vote, vote against it. Yeah. Um, in fact, a lot of, you know, one of the other, uh, the representative who, who Corbin, uh, um, Corwin, um, uh, right. Senator, Senator, Cor- Senator Corwin, who that he was okay. the one who called that. There was, there was a, I, I, for, there was a Ohio, um, former Ohio speaker, uh, minority leader, uh, named Corbin. And I, I keep, every time I try to say it, that's what comes out. Um, uh, that, you know, the, he voted against it uh, on the basis of uh, this is part of just a woke movement uh, type thing. And, and uh, uh, I, I, I don't think that's the case. And, and quite honestly, I, I, I could make the very strong conservative case, as, as many have, uh, that uh, Juneteenth is, is very much a holiday we should celebrate. Um, and in fact, it's, it's almost uh, antithetical in, in a lot of ways to critical race theory um, and and wokeism, which is what uh, so yeah, I, I, which is what Rosedale, the guy who 
quoted that 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 comment that uh, Cornyn called kooky. Yeah. He re, he said, "Let's call an ace an ace." And of course, he meant he what he wanted to say was, but he didn't right, say yes. the other thing. Yes. Right. This is an effort by the left <laughs> to create a day out of whole cloth to celebrate identity politics as part of its larger efforts to make critical race theory the reigning ideology of our country. And that's when and when Republican Texas Republican John Cornyn said just kooky and you know he you may have issues with critical race theory i know you do but conflating those two things is just not correct well and i would make the argument now that when biden's signing statement he actually said some things which i think were were in a weird sort of disparity he's sort of i mean are, are we i guess the question is is juneteenth a a celebratory day or it is a day of day of mourning um Biden seemed to, to take the latter position, right? Um, uh, whereas I think properly understood, uh, Juneteenth should be uh, treated as as a celebratory uh, affair in that this is the day that, that, you know, we ended slavery. And by we, I mean the American people, right? Everybody. This is, this is not a um, pigeonholed ethnic group or racial group. Um, uh, uh, holiday. It's it's something that the whole country can and and ought to celebrate. Yeah. Uh, so I and that's I, that's why I'm I'm actually a fan of this. Now again, I, I've got my traditional I'd say um, conservative curm- curmudgeonly. Geez, do we need another federal holiday? Um, uh, sort of thing that's that's still in, still in the background. Right? Well, let, let's talk about um, that because I wanted to but, talk but about I, that. I gladly would trade, yeah, Juneteenth for many of several other federal holidays. So. I wanted to talk about that because uh, Ron Johnson, the Wisconsin Republican uh, senator, uh, basically he decided not to object to the unanimous consent of this in the Senate, but he said, you know. This is another paid holiday for 2 million federal employees at a cost of $600 million per year. And that's kind of along the lines of maybe some of your concerns. And my initial reaction to that was, well, my gosh, when you compare U.S. workers just in general to workers pretty much anywhere in in rich countries in the world, we get so many fewer paid holidays. U.S. employees overall average around 10 paid holidays per year compared to, uh, according to the OECD, 37 in the U.K., 36 in Spain and France, 30 in Germany. Even Mexico has more. They have 13. Canada has 19. So, I, I mean, it seems to me a few more paid holidays is actually a is actually a good thing, I would think, that maybe brings us more in the line with what I would consider to be reasonableness. Yeah, I, you know, look, I think you can that to me, that's that's one of those arguments. Um, that's not a hill I die on. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah, um, I, get that. I, I think there is uh, uh, always some concern that when you start at and this is the the first new federal holiday that's been added in, in 40 years. Um, uh, but uh, I, I think there is always that sort of uh, uh, creeping sort of slippery slope type. Uh, type thing right where well if we juneteenth you know then there will be another and then look there there are some some of these these holidays that that popped up i mean columbus day being one of chief among them right i mean um <laughs> there was definitely lobbied by 
uh, folks in the Italian American community to, to recognize Christopher Columbus and, and, and so forth. And, uh, look where that's gotten us now. Well, what do you, um, yeah, I wanted to ask you about that since you bring it up. What do you think about the argument for renaming Columbus Day, Indigenous Peoples Day, or kind of changing that? What, what's your, what, what's your thinking on that? I think that makes it even worse, <laughs> if you will. Okay. Um, uh, but I mean, let me go up and, and for all the reasons why I think Juneteenth is, is good um that that's bad and so for example what we're talking about uh on juneteenth is celebrating a, an actual event a definite thing that happened in time um and and we can look at uh the what you know the, the facts of what happened and and have a conversation about it um and and again there's there's a lot to celebrate there um and and that that story necessarily involves abraham lincoln and involves uh his statements at the gettysburg address that you know will move forth in a, a new birth of freedom right that's that's you know there it, it is sort of like a second founding second fourth of july that's you know so many so many uh uh you know scholars uh, historians have referred to um, the end of the Lincoln presidency and the um, post-Civil War amendments as sort of the, the second founding. Um, so I, 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 I think that's, that is important stuff. Um, and I think it's important when you have holidays that are tied to an actual uh, historical event as opposed to, um, let's say, Martin Luther King Day, which is set aside to, well, it honors a man uh, who was a flawed man, and the more we find out, he may have been seriously flawed uh, a man. Um, but also uh, certain ideas that he 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 uh, promoted, and again, some of those ideas are wonderful. But there was other stuff that that is not so wonderful. Um, well, I, and, I would disagree with that. Let, let me let me just jump in and say that what you call flaws, I, I think a, a lot of folks, especially on the left, would call actually uh, would see exactly the other way. I think it's it's clear that uh, history well, look, of no, has history has shown I, that I'm talking about. I know what you, I think I know what about. you're talking about. There's this sort of sanitized version of MLK that for popular consumption, but he actually turned out to be, you know, in many ways, considerably more radical than the standard story. And a lot of us on the left say like, well, yeah, and that's a that's a good thing. And we're happy we can celebrate that. I can understand where a lot of people on the right would see those as flaws, but I, no, I no, would know. Okay. No, I, I like I, I consider I put that in that second category of. Uh, ideas that I, I may disagree with. Uh, by flaws, I mean seriously, ca seriously character flaws. Uh, some of the research that that came out uh, uh, before about um, being present at uh, you know rapes, uh, <laughs> cheating on his wife uh, serially. Um, there there were a lot of if if the Me Too movement had been active at that time, there there may well have been uh, some some well, I don't know. I don't know how it would have. Would well, have that, that means that, those, that those sounds a little hypocritical flaws, of you. That's what I'm referring to, not not uh, ideological predilections. Well, I wonder if that's a little hypocritical of of you, and maybe it's not. But it seems to me that you have criticized the Me Too movement and sort of historical revisionism, and so now you're uh, now are you saying that well, we shouldn't celebrate Martin Luther King for his leadership, his unquestionably 
critical leadership of the unquestionably, I would say, good civil rights movement in this country because of some character flaws. Uh, is that is that what you're saying? No, I'm saying I think I like holidays better that commemorate actual events rather than the holidays that are intended to honor a particular person for the very reason that people are flawed. I see what you're saying. Okay. It, it, yeah, you, you to, it, to, it, the, the holiday then becomes not so much an observation uh, of, of something that happened, but then a litmus test on, on, you know, this person and reading all these different things into them. And um, it, so, so yes, that's why I, I'm saying I prefer Juneteenth to, uh, you know, or Columbus Day for well, the exact but, same reason. But I think that um, the, the reason why, you know, it's it's MLK Day is that he is sort of the, the focus of that movement. In other words, there wasn't yeah. like a oh, yeah. single day, a single event. But I think most Americans now recognize the civil rights movement in this country as a great moral good. There's just not a specific date. And sure. I think it's something that absolutely should be celebrated. And so we pick out this clearly leading figure, the leading figure in this movement and use him as a way to celebrate. So I, I don't see MLK Day being a celebration of Martin Luther King specifically, but more of well, the civil it, rights it's got movement. His name on it, and they have well, it on well, his sure. birthday. So I, I mean, mean and President's you know. Day is technically still, you know, George Washington's birthday kind of thing. But I think those are the only two that are directly linked to a person's name and the still federal holiday sort of thing. But yeah, I have less of a problem with it than, than you do. But well, what, no, I'm, I'm not. No, I mean, I think you're misunderstanding me. I'm okay. not. I'm not saying. I'm, I have a problem with it. I'm saying if we're naming holidays, I think the the Juneteenth type type holiday is far superior. Yeah, but it's a different right? thing. I'm saying we're celebrating something different with Juneteenth than we are when yeah. we celebrate MLK Day. Right, right. That's and that's my point. But I think we should celebrate the civil rights movement at least once sure. a year. Sure. So what would but you? I think I think your I think your your question was why why is Juneteenth better than uh, say, yeah, I don't think it's you know, better. I see what you're talking about. Columbus. Well, no, I listen. But you you said um, Columbus Day. Can we change it to Indigenous Peoples Day? And, and I said, well, look, I'm not crazy about the holidays that are based solely on people. Sure, I, I get um, what you're saying. And then, and then I think moving Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day, I think that that makes it even more amorphous, right? Um, I guess that's what I'm sort of sort of arguing is is I think holidays ought to be based on. Um, uh, or, or are better based on uh, specific events and things that happen that we commemorate uh, rather than um, things that okay. are, are sort of more wishy-washy, whether that be a person, uh, a people, or just, just vague ideas. Right. Which, which is not to say that you necessarily would, you know, if you were in Congress, would vote to you know, repeal uh, the federal holiday no. for Columbus no. Day or, uh, or, or MLK Day. Right. No. Gotcha. Gotcha. I see what you're saying. What do you think about, and there's there's some suggestion, and we've talked about this a little bit in the past, I think, about making Election Day a federal holiday? Um, I'd be okay with that. Yeah, me too, obviously. So, yeah. You know, it, you know whether, now again, you... <laughs> Uh, we 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 would start going down that that track of well what only one day for election day come on uh, you can't expect me to vote just in one day 
Um, we had really, I would expect extended to a week and so forth. Um, but no, I, I don't have any, uh, objection to that. And I think it might be a good patriotic sort of signaling, right? Again, I, I'm, I'm big on, I've, I've spouted this and people have even made fun of me before, but because I think everyone voting on election day is something good because it is that sort of, um, marker of, of national unity. Um, just like, you know, the 4th of July, uh, where we can say, hey, this was the day uh, that they signed the Declaration of Independence. Uh, Depend- Independence was actually de- declared, as I'm sure you know, Mike, on July 2nd. Mm-hmm. Um, but they just didn't actually have the document ready to sign until the 4th. Um, but the resolution passed on the, the Kinko's was closed. Yeah, it was the whole thing. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, but uh but it, it, it's like that. It, it's here is something that's actually happening uh, on this day that we're getting together to celebrate something that uh, the entire country can celebrate. Right. It is it is unifying. And, and, uh, and we can definitely say that the entire country can and should celebrate the fact that we ended slavery and we can that, that June 19th is, I think, the best, the most fitting day to, uh, to you know, to commemorate that. Yeah. No, I've seen I've also I mean, I've, I've heard arguments and I think if you're going to be technically legally you know, technical about this, you could say, well, the day the 13th yeah. Amendment was ratified yeah. might be a better day. But I don't I don't think it I don't think so. Um, I, I don't think it has the, the same, uh, you know, again, because slavery at that point had already been eliminated. It hadn't been officially eradicated constitutionally for all time. But. And that would be creating something out of whole cloth. I mean, in a sense, because there, there already is at least some tradition right, around Juneteenth. Yeah. And so, yeah, as a, as a Burkean, you would, you would like that a little bit better, I think. Than- that's, maybe, maybe, so that maybe that's the best way that, that I can de- describe this, right? That um, holidays like uh, uh, the 4th of July and uh, Juneteenth, um, uh, and, and to some extent, I, I, I suppose you could say, um, uh, Veterans Day, which was originally Armistice, Armistice Day, uh, um, Thanksgiving. Uh, those, those are those are the more Burkean pre-existing holidays, right? That the federal government just sort of recognizes, as opposed to uh, the federal government saying, "Hey, let's have a holiday here." Right. But, but yeah, I see what you're saying, but I also think it's you know it's there is something to be said for taking a pause to commemorate things that are important in our history, even though they don't have that sort of tradition behind, because they can't, of course, because sure. you can't celebrate Juneteenth before, you know, the 1860s, obviously. Right. So, you know, that kind of thing. Right. So, so yeah. All right. Well, I guess we, we largely agree on that. And before we get to something we might have a little bit more disagreement on, and that is the fed and interest rates, we're going to take a final quick break and we will be right back. Okay, Jay. So uh, how about if we talk about the latest statements by the Federal Reserve and where we think things are going, whether or not we uh, we agree with Powell and Yellen and company on all this stuff? Well, yeah. And I think, you know, you, you and I have joked um, sort of, I believe it was uh, Justice Kagan who had said, we're all textualists now, that we're all modern, modern uh, monetarists now. Um, but maybe, maybe uh, less so. So the Fed uh, met Earlier this week, and um, Fed Chairman uh, Jerome Powell announced that uh, he expected uh, that the, or signaled that the the Fed may uh, raise interest rates uh, by late 2023. 
Um, this is sooner than they had anticipated or predicted at their March meeting. Uh, now, then following up on that, um, the uh, Fed president from St. Louis uh, made a statement uh, Friday or Thursday night uh, saying that he thought it would be more late uh, 2022 uh, when um, uh, the Fed would or should move to to raise interest rates. Now, in, in both both cases, it sort of roiled the markets, particularly the Dow, uh, which dropped substantially, uh, most substantially on Friday. Um, so uh, the the issue, of course, that, that comes up that what the Fed is trying to guard against is inflation. Um, the CSI, the consumer uh, CPI, uh, consumer price index is up uh, from for May was up five percent over the prior year, which is a significant jump. Um, and if you look at um, uh, inflation just by you know quarterly and then annualize it. Uh, it's even bigger now. I don't know the way those those annual annualizing it, you know, really holds out. That remains to be seen. But the Fed's uh, stated goal is they want to have two percent inflation uh, with essentially maximum uh, sustained employment. So uh, my uh, my take on this is is I I am have, have always been reluctantly a uh, modern monetarist. I was sort of dragged into it, right? Um, like like a whole lot of people were last year. Uh, so I, I think it's I think it's good that the Fed is signaling that it's going to uh, keep an eye and and will hold the reins on inflation because I, I think there is there is some some scariness uh, out there um, just on the, on the basis that look the recession we're coming out of this time is different than your your typical recession um, and it's it's different in two ways. One, it, it wasn't caused by the typical uh, business cycle um, uh, type of uh, recession, right? Um, uh, it, it was caused by this this really weird um, uh, outside influence and the government's response to it. And it's something that can turn around much quicker uh, because of that. Uh, the second reason that it's so much different and weird is that there is this unprecedented uh, government spending uh, and and push uh, against it that you you've never seen in in any other recession. Um, so I, I I think there it, there's a lot of reasons to be to be very concerned about inflation, and I'm I'm glad that the Fed um, uh, is is eyeing this. Uh, I, I would hope they would eye it maybe even little 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 stronger than than they are now. So it it sounds to me like. You feel that the Fed is acting reasonable with reasonable prudence here, uh, although you might would like you might like to see a little bit stronger signal that they're considering raising interest rates more or sooner. Is that is that a fair right. character? Yeah. yeah. You know, and that's that's you know, I, I wasn't I thought that's probably where you would come down. Now, if we were talking to Trey, I, I can just see Trey, if he's you know, hearing this, just shaking his head because Trey's the one of, of our of all our hosts who kind of is our inflation hawk, I guess you could say. And and I get those arguments. And there are plenty of people who, like Trey, believe that the Fed should be doing more. You know, there's that famous quote from former Fed chair uh, William William Chesney McMartin, I think it is, who said, right, the job of the Fed is to take away the punch ball just as the party gets going. And uh, that's always a tough thing to judge, right? Because there's a there's a lag on both sides, meaning that yeah. the data that the Fed has to work with in making these decisions is a snapshot of the past. 
not the present. And also it takes time for any action the Fed makes to reach its full impact. So so it is difficult to to judge but i tend to agree with uh with uh, yellen with powell that as you pointed out that there are a lot of these factors that are very it seem very specific to the incredibly unusual circumstances of the last year and there's more much more reason to believe than not that this is going to be sort of a a, a temporary uh, minor spike in inflation and not something that's going to be permanent. So therefore, you don't want to jump in, raise interest rates and kind of slow down the the recovery uh, to to deal with that. Yeah, but again, I'm 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 more I, I would be a, a stronger inflation hawk than that than I think Powell or, or yeah. Yellen would be. Again, I'm not a trained economist, but, you know, um, Sort of again, the the you know the smartest people in in the in the country got us have gotten us into uh, other uh, big monetary problems. So I mean, the the people who were managing the Fed during the 1970s, I'm sure, were much smarter, more better educated than me. But um, there we were. I, I I think actually the the concern that you know something that that's again a weird thing about inflation is it can be that crazy cycle that feeds upon itself. Uh, and I think that's that's the concern is you need to hit it early uh, so that you don't get that uh, that ra- increasingly ramped up gusts, um, if that makes any yeah. sense. No, right? I, and, 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 yeah. and to me, that that's why the, the yellow problem is, is probably the, the bigger one is that the more money the government pumps into uh, the economy. Uh, the, the you know, the more the mere for, fuel there is for for inflation. Um, uh, so I, I think it's it's you know one let's let's slow down the spending, uh, and two um, let's have the Fed uh, start applying the brakes gradually. Yeah, and uh, Trey and I have kind of gone back and forth on on this because, like I said, he takes your position to I think an even higher degree. And you know, I I, I point out that well, we've been waiting and waiting and waiting because you, you of course know that even since yeah. the spending from the in response, 2008, yeah. we were figuring there was going to be a spike. Yeah. And, and there was sort of this chicken little-ish sort of thing from the classical economists. And, you know, the, with this, with, there's going to be massive inflation just right around the corner. And, well, it's been over a de- well over a decade and we haven't seen it. It's left a lot of people scratching their heads. In fact, the Fed is, you know, often say, I, we, don't, we don't understand why there isn't more. It seems kind of weird. But uh, and so I guess I'm a little more hesitant to jump to any sort of conclusions. And I think that this sort of action of saying, hey, yes, the brakes will get pumped at some point here in the in the foreseeable future seems to me to be a, a pretty prudent, a pretty good approach to these things. And so I think Powell's uh, Powell's right on track with this. I'm, I'm sure we, we both hope that that I'm right and that Powell's right on this. Yeah. Well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, all right. So, you know, Jay, I think we have a little more time. Why don't we I think it would be nice to kind of fit in that second Supreme Court, the big Supreme Court case, which is weird to say, because you generally don't think of a unanimous opinion as a big deal. But it was just a big deal for other reasons, I suppose. Right. Exactly. The Supreme Court ruled uh, in a unanimous 9-0 decision on Thursday that the city of Philadelphia uh, can't tell a foster care agency to violate its faith as a condition of uh, obtaining a city contract. Um, uh, Justice Alito, however, wrote a sort of uh, blistering uh, 77. He's, he, had a, he has a busy week, 
um, 77 page uh, concurrence uh, indicating that, uh, yes, while the court gets that gets it right, the, the courts should do much more uh, to safeguard uh, religious liberty and that this decision uh, may not may not do that. In fact, would, would not do that. So this was Fulton versus Philadelphia. And uh, the case turned on uh, a Catholic church, um, uh, social services, which is operated under a city contract for 50 years. Um, and what the Catholic Church w- would do was help assist in placing children with uh, foster families. Uh, now, the church uh, abided by its teachings and uh, believed that it, it would not uh, uh, place children uh, with a, a gay couple. Um, now, significantly in, in this case, uh, the fact showed that no gay couple had ever asked. Uh, and to the extent that there were, were ever any issues, the the uh, uh, CSS, the Catholic uh, Social Services, simply referred people out to many of the 20-some the other uh, placement agencies that, that could do this. Um, so those the facts were, were, were sort of peculiar in, in that um, uh uh, in that state, in that sense, um, but this this got out in the newspaper that the, the church's hypothetical position, at least, was it wouldn't place people with um, uh, a gay couple, and uh, so the city uh, sued and and uh, uh, <laughs> tried to shut them down. They lost the first couple rounds, um, uh, but uh, won at the Supreme Court on the sense that this is a um, generally applicable law. Uh, which typically can mean uh, you you don't get a religious exemption, but if the generally applicable law allows for discretionary ex- exceptions, which this one did, uh, then it's not really uh, generally applicable. Right. If you follow me, yep. I don't know if I explained. No, that yeah, because well if, if it can't be generally yeah. applicable if there's exceptions, because that sort of is the opposite of generally. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And this yeah, and this sort of said it's it's you know generally applicable unless we say it's it's not. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the court said, look, on that basis, then uh, there is essentially a uh, what what the what the city of Philadelphia did was was uh, improperly deny um, the Catholic uh, so, uh, social services an exemption. Right. Because they said essentially that the uh, since it's not generally applicable, then uh, that means that the court applies strict scrutiny here. And that means that's the highest standard of review. And so the state here has to show that there's not only a compelling governmental interest in doing what they're doing, but also that right. the way they're achieving it is narrowly tailored to achieve that interest. And, and in this instance, OK, maybe there's such an interest, but the court found that giving Catholic social services an exemption would, well, first off, it would probably increase the number of children finding foster families, which furthers the state's interest. And secondly, that the governmental interest in non-discrimination isn't sufficient to deny uh, Catholic social services its free exercise-based waiver that they think it should basically get. And it seems to me that that's uh, there's a reason why this was a unanimous opinion, right? Even the court's three liberals signed on to this. But the interesting thing to me was just the my God, the, the, the bile, the anger in the dissent from Alito, and it was a long dissent, 77 pages was just, yeah. or sorry, not dissent, concurrence, just scathing. Yeah, exactly. It felt like a dissent, yeah, didn't it? Yeah, right. When he said, you know, the majority's decision might as well be written on the dissolving paper sold in magic shops. I had a Scalia flashback, you know, and and wow, he was he was not 
a happy guy. And the reason he was not a happy guy is because what I think uh, a lot of conservatives were hoping and certainly what Catholic Social Services was hoping was that this would be uh, an opportunity for the court to revisit their decision in Employment Division versus Smith in which they right. created that or that was, that precedent was set of the fact that generally applicable laws that happen, just happen to apply to religious and non-religious groups are okay. I don't violate free the free exercise clause, and that's what Alito was was arguing should be you know should be considered. And here, to me, is where I think Alito he was right about sort of the evanescence of the ruling because Philadelphia can just rewrite its law to make it generally applicable, and that just yeah, kind of just get rid of. They can just say no exceptions, yeah. and at that point, then it's now it's it's a different case, right? Yeah, I, I think. I think there's still a, a good argument that uh, it violates the First Amendment, even if they, they do that, particularly in light of this ruling. Right. <laughs> if it looks like very much the intent is to discriminate against uh, a religious entity, then 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 there's there's that. So I, to some extent, I think Alito's uh, concerns there might be a little overblown. Um, but, but I mean, on to the issue of, you know, of, of Smith. Now, Alito argues that going on to that issue, saying that, well, you know, the free exercise the free exercise clause is not just some non discrimination clause and but it, but it seems to me that he misreads in a, in a weird way the first amendment at least the, the religion provisions because when you take the free exercise clause in conjunction with the establishment clause it seems to me that the decision in smith actually really walks this line in in a good way and that was a that was a decision in which justice scalia wrote the majority opinion in which he said respondents urge us to hold quite simply that when otherwise prohibitable conduct is accompanied by religious convictions not only the convictions but the conduct itself must be free from governmental regulation we have never held that and declined to do so now and i read that and i think yeah and alito is saying well no and i think scalia is right on this and alito's wrong wow that's really that's really a thin line there where you're saying scalia's right and alito. now i i I think you can part of this always again turn turns on the case uh that's before the court. Sure. Um and for that reason I'm gonna sort of take the same position that I did when we were talking about the healthcare case, is that uh, in this in this instance, um while I would say the the dissent in the ACA case was more just uh to call out uh other decisions for hypocrisy uh, or to sort of uh, indicate that, hey, this is what happens when we try to bend over backwards to save a statute that that perhaps shouldn't have been saved. This is this is the, these are the weird results we get. This, to me, is much more of the setting up for the next case. Right. Um, this this is the more substantive dissent um, at 77 pages. How could it not be substantive? Yeah. Um, uh, that that it, it's it's very much an argument that uh, we need to take up a stronger uh, uh, defense of of um, yeah of uh, religious practice and and interestingly it was uh, Justice Alito uh, who in uh, he was the keynote speaker at the Federal Society meeting uh, last year uh, and this was was really one of the, the topics he hit on was. Uh, that that uh, free exercise of religion has become in in many ways a a disfavored right. Um, uh, so 
so yeah, it, it's not surprising. And I, I think this looks like to be laying the groundwork uh, for something else. But but on that, Jay, I should say that there, it seems to me that there are at least four votes to overturn or potentially overturn that ruling in Smith because Justice Barrett, even though she didn't sign on to the dissent or that concurrence, she also wrote uh, that wrote separately, essentially arguing that we should at least re the court should at least reconsider Smith, though not in this instance. And so, right, because this uh, yeah. case just doesn't present the right facts to do so. Yeah, yeah, but, and, and that's what I mean. I think I think that's I think that's correct. I don't think this case does, but. What Alito's doing is setting it up for and and uh, Coney Coney Barrett sort of with the assist of of you know getting ready to when the when the right case does come along with the right set of facts. Yeah. But what um, what do you think, Jan? The larger question: Did Scalia and the, and the majority get it wrong in 1990 in Smith? Wow, you're asking yeah. me to say you're asking me to say did Scalia get it wrong? Yeah, I, I put it that way specifically. <laughs> you know, absolutely, that's, absolutely. That's a tough one. Um, I, I would say. Every case has to be decided on its facts. Oh, so that's I, a lawyerly I, response. Really think, good job, I, I think Jay. Right then, but different facts, and and I think you could you could make a a, a strong case that Smith ought to be um, uh, supplemented, uh, perhaps, or or some nuance added. Um, well, let me ask you. Let me let me rephrase. Facts that are presented. Allow me to rephrase. Case. Would you agree? And I will quote uh, part of that Scalia quote that. When otherwise prohibitable confirmation hearing, Jeez. yeah, I know. When otherwise prohibitable conduct is accompanied by religious convictions, not only the convictions but the conduct itself must be free from governmental regulation. And in in response to that, Scalia says, "Well, no, that's not right." And you're not you're not saying that that is correct. I'm not saying that is correct. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I would be disagreeing with Scalia on that. Um, yeah. So so for example. Um, yeah, there's a, a fun case out of, I believe it's out of Hawaii, that, that deals with animal sacrifice. Um, and, um, uh, yeah, where the, the court says, look, the, you can, um, it's the, 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 the uh, statute actually banning this was uh, overbroad uh, because it, it was only uh, really, um, or under because it, it was only enforced against uh, animal sacrifice practicers and not against people who own slaughterhouses or, or other people who would be disposing of, of animal wastes, hmm. um, animal carcasses. Um, <clears throat> so I, I guess, you know, I, I, again, I don't know. The, the, the gist is that, uh, and Scalia has been strong in this for, for a while. Also the, uh, um, the case that, that prompted the, uh, uh, religious freedom, um, act, uh, had to do Freedom with, Restoration with Act, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, where, where Scalia said, "Look, I, this can be a religion. That's that's fine. You can believe what you want, but here's certain things that you can't do." Um. So, and and again, in, in this case, it's it's a little weird in that the CSS was never actually never actually refused to place somebody, right? Uh, and, and I think that's maybe a different presents a different factual sort of pattern of, you know, are they, is, is there conduct that is necessarily going with the, the, the conscience element of it? Um, it, it I suppose there, there is, but it's, it's harder to, to point to, right. When, yeah. when you can't have it, when it hasn't actually happened yet. 
Yeah, you know, one one thing that struck me when I was thinking about this decision is that when we talk about religion cases and, and the First Amendment, it seems to me that there's an analogy here in a weird way with the Second Amendment. What I mean by that is that oftentimes I think people particularly on the left, when we think about religion, like both. Well, <laughs> but no, when we think about religion cases and these issues on the left, oftentimes we tend to focus on the establishment clause, right? Yeah. As opposed to the free exercise clause. But of course you can't, they're, they're, they're conjoined, right? You can't just separate them. You have to consider them as a unit in a sense. At the same way, on, when we're talking about the second amendment, those of us on the left will say, well, this, this is thing about the well-regulated militia, right? What, what's that? And then people on the right saying, just focusing on the right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And again, these are things that were written as part of an integrated whole. And I think oftentimes what people on both sides do is not consider them as part of that whole. I think that's a good point. Yeah, well, thank you. And if you also figure that, again, the First Amendment was patterned on Jefferson's um, uh, Bill, of, uh, Bill of Rights in the Virginia Constitution, mm -hmm. uh, the Virginia Religious Liberties, um, and and the, the context in which uh, the framers were, were operating, right? I mean, it, it, again, it's, it's all ancient history to us now, but to them, it it wasn't. You know, they're, they're coming off just you know, a hundred years, 150 years ago, where there were, uh, some, some pretty significant religiously animated, uh, wars, including a yeah. civil war, yep. uh, that, that went on in, in England. And there was a significant, uh, religious persecution, um, during that time. And, and the, the reason that, uh, you know, so many people fled the colonies in the first place was, was to, uh, flee from, from one set of persecutors or the other. And that was sort of, we sort of ended up with this, uh, 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 you know, funny mix uh, because of that, right? I mean, the, the Puritans got out because they were being persecuted, and then the uh, when the Puritans took over, the uh, Catholics were 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 being persecuted, so they they took off and headed for Maryland, and uh, nobody liked the Quakers, and uh, you know, so uh, that that this religious pluralism is something that was would have been very uh, familiar to the founders and something very important to them because they would listen, people risked their lives, left their homeland, uh, in order to be able to practice their religion freely. Uh, and then the second piece that, that Jefferson had objected to that goes more to the, the establishment clause was people in Virginia, uh, were being forced to pay taxes to support the church of England. And by the time we got into the 1760s and 1770s, you know, the Church of England is was essentially also the, the government of England, the, the state. Uh, so there was there was that argument that, um, listen, we, we shouldn't be compelled to essentially pay the salaries uh, of, of uh, uh, British uh, clergymen uh, in, in the states. So, um, yeah, I, 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 I agree. Yeah, you have to look at the whole the whole piece of it. Um, uh, and I, I think there there will be uh, you know more um, religious liberty in ter in terms of uh, uh, free expression cases that that come up in the next couple couple years. I mean, similar to like a masterpiece cake, uh, it may even be another masterpiece cake uh, uh, yeah. case uh, that that's going to get to the merits of of the religious expression as opposed to um, you know again masterpiece kind of cake kind one kind of kind of punted a little bit um, and didn't reach the merits. But And, and this court, I think, would coming. be a, a little less likely 
to, to do that for better or for worse, depending on kind of how, how the outcome would be, I think. But yeah, I agree. Yeah, I think that's right. All right. Um, well, I think that about does it for this week's show. But just a quick update to folks. I, I'm sure, Jay, you remember that uh, a while ago I mentioned our goal to get 5% of our listeners to support us on Patreon. And we were so close. I, I looked one day and I was like, wow, we're almost there, which is amazing for a, a podcast. It really shows how great and supportive our listener base is and we just need well not that many more i think last time i checked 20 new supporters were uh, if we get that we will be at that five percent goal and i made a promise i said if we get there by the end of this month not all of our supporters will get not one not two but three extra bonus episodes with topics chosen by our Patreon supporters. So if you've been listening for a while, but you haven't quite yet gotten to that point of supporting us, uh, this would be a great time because uh, you'll get some, uh, everyone will get some free stuff and that will be really kind of cool, I think. So anyway, if you're interested in, in doing that, go to patreon.com slash politics guys. But uh, also, if you are a supporter, we have our bonus show that we're, Jay and I will be recording in just a minute here that comes out on Wednesday mornings. We'll be talking about the Biden-Putin talks, the House repealing the 2002 Iraq authorization for use of military force, and we'll be taking some listener questions responding to those. And Patreon supporters get that. Other stuff at various levels of support. Again, that's patreon.com slash politics guys to check all of that out. And remember, if you want that, but you're just not in the place where you can support the show financially, send me an email, mikeatpoliticsguys.com. Time? Come and I will get that all set up for you. Finally, if you can, if you haven't yet subscribed to the show or left a rating or review, that really does help us out. So please, please do that. We really would appreciate if you just take a minute to do that. Finally, if you just want to get in touch with us for any random reason, our address is mail at politicsguys.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, and you will find the links to those in our show notes. A special thanks to our executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Will Morano, Andre Masker, Daniel Toe, Chris Wilkerson, and Ryan Beasley. We'll be back with a new show next week. We hope you'll join us.